This episode is sponsored by Value Motive. If you're a decision maker interested in the possibilities of applying artificial intelligence in your business, Value Motive can help. An easy way to get started is with a kickoff data workshop facilitated by Value Motive. In the workshop, you'll evaluate your data resources, set goals towards a more data driven culture, and make plans on how to get there. The workshop is non binding. Afterwards, you can work on the implementation on your own, hire someone else, or let Value Motive help you. Book a workshop and start your data driven journey. Go to valuemotive.com to learn more. It is time for another fix of boss level. Before we get into it, let me thank you again for helping me grow the podcast. It seems that every month is always the new best month. So thank you and keep up the good work. Every share is appreciated and reviews on iTunes are very welcome. And I will do my best to keep providing quality content. And another awesome thing happened recently. So um, I do quite a lot of talks at various business events on the topics of this podcast. And now I've been nominated for an award as new speaker of the year. So if you want to vote for me, the link to the voting page is in the show notes. Okay, now let's cut to the chase. Today's topic is machine learning. And I'm talking to one of the brightest minds in the field, Hillary Mason. She's the founder of Fast Forward Labs, a machine intelligence research company, and she also advises startups through Excel, a prominent venture capital firm. If you're interested in artificial intelligence and machine learning, I'm pretty sure you'll love this episode. So you actually might as well share it on social media right now because it is that good. Okay, now, take a deep breath and let's delve into it. So I'm Hillary Mason. As of two weeks ago, I'm the VP of research at Cloudera. I'm also the founder of Fast Forward Labs. It was acquired by Cloudera. Um, the data scientist in residence at Excel and generally a computer scientist who's worked in machine learning for some time. Um, and I really enjoy building data-driven products and doing it such that they are really excellent. I read somewhere, I think it was in a PC World article, that you started programming at the age of five. I did. That is like, I, I started programming when I was 12. So does that mean <laughs> that you're always going to be seven years better than me? Yes. <laughs> um, no, I happened to go to an elementary school that had computers, um, which was unusual at the time and also had very little supervision. And so, you know, I wrote my first basic program on the Apple IIe wow. um, when I was in kindergarten and have not <laughs> looked back since. <laughs> but that's very impressive. I mean, that's all. It's just great that you're kindergarten 
had computers and that you were actually able to use them. But I still think it's pretty amazing that you were able to figure out that there's this thing called and, and you can actually do stuff with it. <laughs> well, you're going to know exactly how old I am because um, we would get these educational magazines in our school and in the back they would have programs you could type in in BASIC. These listings, yeah. Yes. We had the same thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> And I actually had, uh, on the podcast, I had Risto Silasma, who's the uh, uh, actually the founder of F-Secure and now the chairman of Nokia. Uh, and he actually, he was one of the people uh, writing those listings for the magazines awesome. in Finland. <laughs> so that was, yeah. We talked about that on the podcast. I'll send you the link. You can check it out. That it was, is so cool. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so you started with BASIC back then. Um did you study computer science uh, at university? Yes. That was your major? Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. I'm a computer scientist, though I do feel like I have to say most data scientists I know are not computer scientists. Um, in fact, um, most of the people on my team are not computer scientists at all. So what was their background then? Uh, several physics, neuroscience, electrical engineering. We have one... Uh, one person who has a computer science undergrad degree, but then a legal degree. So he's been our lawyer and an engineer for um, a few years. Awesome. Um, but it's really, you know, one thing I love about working in this field is that people come to it with a very, very diverse backgrounds. And, you know, as long as they have you know quantitative skill and they're, you know, programmers of some kind, um, you know, they, they can be great at data science. Data science is such a new field that that um, probably like, I don't know, you, you can probably now study it a lot. Like it's easier for you to study data science now than I it was. I think for three years you've exactly. been able to get a degree in it, right? Yes, so exactly. the vast majority of people working in this field do not have degrees in data science, yeah. um, which makes it better, yeah. I think. <laughs> it's, yes. it's a little bit more fun to, it is uh, still ill-defined. So the data science job descriptions are not nearly as likely to be the same or to have the same skills required as software engineering, for example. But um, it's, a, it's really fun to work in a field that is sort of a new professional space. Yeah, because you, you get to define the whole field. Yes. <laughs> and you have to take this, uh, take this very seriously because the things that you do, they will have an, a huge impact on the lives of <laughs> hundreds and thousands of people in the future. <laughs> it's very funny. In I think it was the beginning of 2010, I co-authored an essay, a short essay called A Taxonomy of Data Science with Chris Wiggins, who's a Columbia professor. And we just wrote down the very simple process of data science. You obtain data, you clean the data, you explore the data, you model the data, you communicate it. But this actually felt novel at the time. It was not taken for granted that everyone would understand this process. And so here we are, what, seven or eight years later, and it's, it's so obvious everybody knows this. And yet I think back to that piece and I realize we've come so far so quickly in this field. Um, and I'm really excited to see where we'll be in the next seven years. How did you at that time realize that that data is something that is going to be so big? Or, or did you realize that or how did you ever get interested in, in data? So I was interested in machine learning, um, which at the time was not cool exactly. at all. <laughs> and so, you know, when you think about machine learning, it requires data. And so, you know, when I left academia, I went to um, companies that had interesting data problems and 
data science was a nice way to describe the work we were doing. Um, but you can really approach it from the algorithmic point of view, or you can approach it from the, I have this data point of view, or actually a really fun debate in data science is, uh, you know, do you start with the question or do you start with the data, right? And if you come from a social science background, you, I mean, those folks tend to think you have to start with the question and any other way of doing it is absolutely wrong. But again, I'm a computer scientist, so I'm perfectly happy to start with the data and then figure out what we can do with it later. Um, but that's always a really fun sort of difference in philosophy. And the third thing, by the way, is, is the infrastructure and tooling you need. So you need the data, you need the questions, and you need the tools to actually get there. Um, but nobody starts from the tooling. Yeah, and I think most often questions like that, data first or question first, it's it's like a black and white question. And like you said, it's mostly like most of the time the answer is like an iterative process between the two. That yes. you, you work on both of them and you learn from both of them. <laughs> and, yep. Yeah. So we haven't talked about Fast Forward Labs yet. So what does that do? What does the company do? So Fast Forward Labs is a company I started uh, over three years ago, and we do really two things, but they're two parts of the same thing. So we do our own program of applied machine learning research, uh, which means that every quarter, so every three to four months, we publish a report and a working software prototype that demonstrates an emerging machine learning capability. And so some of the reports we've done are on things like automated summarization, um, natural language generation, so taking structured data and generating narrative. Um, we just did one on algorithmic interpretability, so techniques for figuring out how black box systems work. Um, we have a pretty fun process for figuring out what topics to look at, and we aim to publish about six months to two years ahead of when these techniques are viable to use in production code. Um, so this is highly applied research with a fairly short time frame. And our clients subscribe to our research, and then we also spend time with them. Um, and I call it advising because we don't write code for them, but we are essentially their nerd best friends. And so we work with executives, we work with data scientists, and we really help them think through not just the technical questions around their data work. So really things like, what algorithm should I try? Let's you know talk through a whiteboard out something, or let's think about the infrastructure we need. Um, but we also work on uh, the non-technical problems you have to solve around the technological problems. And these are things like, uh, who do I hire? Where do they sit in the org? How do we, what does the process of data science look like versus the process of software engineering? Um, all of that fun stuff, which you really have to figure out how to do right if you're also going to be able to build a product or a business. And so the first side of what we do at Fast Forward is research. And the second side is that we use that research to help our clients build excellent data products and businesses. You're also a data scientist in residence at Excel. And Excel is a venture capital firm that has invested in a lot of groundbreaking companies such as Facebook, Dropbox, Slack, Supercell. So what does a data scientist in residence do at Excel? So at Excel... Um, which is a really fun and part-time position. Um, I've really loved working with them. So they invest in all of these different companies, but investing actually involves um, a lot of groundwork. And so my role, I'm not an investor, nor do I want to be. Um, I'm, I'm a builder and I like, I like making things. 
Um, but at Excel, I really did three things. So the first one is really obvious, and that's just technical due diligence. So if they're looking at a company that claims to have some kind of machine learning technology, actually sitting down with the founders and you know figuring out what's real and what isn't. Um, and that's always a lot of fun because when you see something amazing, it's just so exciting. Um, the second thing is really advising companies that are already in the portfolio. And that's these days, that's more where I spend my time and sort of helping them think through these same kinds of questions we've been talking about, um, but much more from the startup perspective generally. So, you know, it's a couple of people on the team. They just raised some money. Uh, you know, do they hire a data scientist now? Who would that be? What would that look like? Those sorts of questions. What can they expect? Um, you know, sort of thinking about their product roadmap from a data perspective, all that stuff. And then the third thing is really thinking about where the next generation of machine learning, or maybe we'll call them AI today, companies is going to come from and what preconditions need to exist in the world for them to emerge. And then to try and think about how to create those preconditions or at least recognize them when we see them. And that mainly involves doing things like writing, speaking, sometimes events, which the Excel team is fantastic at running. Um, but just sort of trying to, to understand, you know, where the interesting stuff is happening. You get a really good look at up, up and coming companies uh, through Excel. You get a look at uh, larger organizations through your work at Fast Forward Labs. So you actually have a, like a front row seat on all of this. That's the plan. <laughs> <laughs> That's really good. Okay, so then you're definitely the person that you, like, you need to share uh, your thoughts on what's the interesting stuff that's going on at the moment? What are you seeing <laughs> from your front seat? <laughs> so I actually have to admit that um, the stuff I'm interested in is not cool um, <laughs> and probably, you know, not getting that much attention. So I'm. But, but then again, I mean, you were interested in machine learning when it wasn't cool and it became cool. So these that's are the true. things that, like you're the true hipster. <laughs> <laughs> no one's ever called me a hipster before. Uh, all right. So um, in machine learning, uh, I am fascinated by language models. So being able to make text and language computable in a way that lets us actually, you know, take an idea and add or subtract another idea and then have language that makes sense come out the other side, uh, to me is a completely sort of mind-blowing area of research. And it's something I'm pretty excited about. Um, and in by this stuff, I don't mean the chatbots we have today because those are largely template driven. Um, and, you know, maybe they they recognize 10 words for pizza, but really it's, you know, it's not AI. But we are at the beginning of being able to build systems that can model language in really interesting ways. And I think that over the next couple of years, we'll see a lot more progress there. And so it's something I'm personally very excited about. What are the kinds of things that you were hoping that we could like if if um, if we can move forward with with natural language processing? What are the kinds of applications that you're hoping that we can get out of that? So there's so many. I mean, we did a report on uh, deep learning for text, which we framed around summarization as a tool. And so, you know, our prototype lets you summarize any English language article on the web. So you have a Chrome extension, you hit a button, you get a summary. And that's lovely, but I could read the article, right? So getting the summary just helps me save a little bit of time. Um, and we also did a second version of our prototype that does not run in real time, but it takes, say, 10,000 documents. In this case, we used Amazon product reviews, and it 
clusters them to say, oh, there are 10 points of view in this set of reviews, and here's a summary of each point of view, right? So that's cool, and that's almost good enough to actually use. And that's interesting to me because now you get a, a superpower you didn't have before. So I could always read one article, but I cannot read 10,000 articles and certainly not 10,000 about the same thing. You know, nobody has that kind of patience. But now I have a capability I didn't have before. And if you think about what that might look like in the future, we could imagine that when a news story is published, um, you know, maybe you know quite a lot about it. And so you just get two sentences with the update. Um, but I know nothing about it. So I get two pages giving me the background and language that I will understand and I'm comfortable with that tells me the entire story. Um, and these are things that could be dynamically generated in close to real time, you know, should it be possible, which it isn't. I'm also excited about the um, data visualization in augmented reality. I have yet to see it done really well, but it feels like there should be something very cool there. What do you think are the benefits that you can get from that? Because I mean, okay, you can get 3D, mm -hmm. but how, what what are you hoping to get out of 3D? Why, why is that going to make the visualization easier? So, so much of data visualization is taking some complex representation and compressing it into two dimensions in a way that makes sense. So getting a third dimension is actually a big deal. And in a way, not in the same way that we have like 3D pie charts, which are awful because they distort um, any intuition you have about the value of the data you're looking at. But really in a way that's very natural in the 3D environment that we're all already accustomed to navigating. And then you can think about it in the augmented reality context of, of integrating with the world around you in some way. And so I can imagine that that gives another layer of meaning. Um, and since the major challenge in data visualization is communicating through these two dimensions and through these visual metaphors that we have learned to interpret, but that don't necessarily come naturally, um, like I feel like there ought to be something really interesting there, but I have yet to see it. I guess I'm so stuck in the 2D world that I'm, I'm struggling to, to think of data that I would want to see in 3D, like in 3D format. <laughs> Well, I mean, there's a video camera right in front of us and you have a couple of things you might want to understand, like how much battery life does it have left? How much storage capacity? Um, I don't know what a third might be, but, you know, you could easily imagine that sort of overlaid over the object itself uh, or something similar. And that's just, you know, a pretty mundane example of something that happens to be in the environment right in front of us. Yeah, that's that's an interesting, interesting topic and i think visualizing data is is probably one of the key things that we need to get better at for us to get the benefits out of out of the data that we have cuz visual representations are just so much easier for people to comprehend compared to just looking at looking at data well, you have, I mean, I, we're actually at a point where, so you can have the raw data, which nobody really understands. And even if you are a data scientist, um, you will look at samples of the data, you know, just to get a notion of what's in there, but you won't be able to, I mean, if you can fit that entire data set in your own mind in a way that you can do a computation without using a computer, it's probably a tiny data set and, you know, perhaps even, you know, fairly trivial. Um, so when you think about not even very large, but somewhat large complex data sets, um, 
the challenge is to really go from, you know, columns of numbers to some graphic that depicts in two dimensions some, something you want to learn from that data set in aggregate. And then we have this ad additional capability where now we can often even go from that graphic representation to a language, again, that can tell you what's in the graph. And that's something that's relatively new. But I actually think that uh, many visualizations will be reduced ultimately to textual interpretations of what wow. the visualization would have shown us. That's that's very interesting. And I, and I think this is like data often seems to be considered this like holy thing, but there are things that we need to be very aware of, such as mm -hmm. things that you're talking about, that we, we need to know, like what kind of data are we gathering? Is this the data that's relevant? Uh, is there data that we should be gathering that we're not gathering? And we're All actually... of these things. <laughs> and it's not easy. And another, another thing I see is um, people think it's fairly trivial to ask questions of data. So take a very simple question like, how many active customers do we have? This is the kind of question that any business might ask. Um, so there are a bunch of things that have to be decided here, right? So what is a customer? What is an active customer? Um, are we going to count for all time? Or are we going to count today? Um, and, you know, it leads often to a situation where because organizations don't have well-coordinated data hygiene efforts or even, um, you know, coordinated analytics efforts, you might have, like, maybe you ask me this question and I make a graph for you and then I'm out sick. And so you ask someone else to do it and they may come up with a different answer. And people don't like that at all. Both of those answers will be correct. We will just have made different decisions uh, as to what constitutes you know, an active customer for the purposes of this query. And, uh, you know, this causes a lot of issues for people because they like to think that data is absolute truth, where it is only necessarily an imperfect representation of reality interpreted by a human being. Um, and so, so these are issues that come up all the time because we like to assume it is some kind of pure or neutral thing, when of course it, it cannot be. If if you're in a meeting and there's there's a person who's uh, who's in charge of writing the notes for that meeting, they have a huge amount of power because the notes that they write will be dispersed to other people, and they will like they'll be the the truth of what happened in the meeting. And in a similar way, people like in analytics roles might be the people who look at data then they have huge power in making those kinds of decisions that you were talking about and then showing the results. And they actually, so they will be the people actually wielding uh, power in organizations. <laughs> it's true um, that often if you control the data, you have a lot of power in how it is interpreted and therefore what actions are taken. Exactly. So uh, isn't wouldn't this actually mean that whenever we see something that's based on the data, we should try to ask for like, what are the interpretations that you had to make to present this data? What are the kinds of decisions that you had to make th to represent this data? What are these like, uh, you know, what are the decisions that you had to make uh, for you to make these conclusions? Absolutely. And one of the things I like to do when I first, you know, help people think about analytics is to ask them, you know, what assumptions do you base your decisions on today that we can now validate through the data? Um, and that's a very careful question because we also have this assumption in the world that it's either data or intuition. So 
either a person's just going to make a decision because they have feelings, or we're going to look at the data and the data is going to just tell us what we have to do with no, you know, gray area and no, um, no feelings involved. And it is not either one of these things. So people do develop really great deep domain knowledge and excellent intuition for the businesses they work in. They're very good at it. Um, but data, that intuition often is also not complete because uh, that's not the way our minds work. And data is a tool to enhance that intuition. And so if you ask people, what assumptions, like, what do you believe today um, that we can now go validate or we can try and understand in more depth? That's a really nice place to start for analysis. So you first start with questions where you think you know the answer. Um, and then you can move into the questions where you don't have a good intuition for the answer. Wow, well, that's, a, that's a really good way of getting started with this whole thing. Mm -hmm. Trying to figure out what are your assumptions and then trying to test those assumptions with data. Yes. That's a very concrete thing that you can try doing. Yes. That's really, really good. Yeah, I love it. Okay, so when we talk about artificial intelligence, I think there's a lot of terms flying around and it might be useful to, to try to define some of them. So uh, can we talk a little about how the following terms are related to each other? So big data... Analytics, data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. I am a huge fan of defining our terms. And this is, this is actually um, for two reasons. One is that, you know, I spend my time at Fast Forward. We work with enterprise clients. We work with startups. We work with researchers. Uh, we work with artists sometimes, you know, people who come from very different perspectives and uh, we will all use the same words and all mean different things. And so I'm very attuned to making sure that we're using the same words to mean the same things. And another reason to think about this is that we often, we have all of these terms you just threw out, big data, analytics, BI, data science. Um, you know, we use them as if they are independent things, and yet there's a, a lot of dependency between them. And so if we start with big data, if we were doing this interview eight or nine years ago, we would be talking about only big data, none of this artificial intelligence or machine learning, maybe a little data science would sneak in there. Um, and I've always put big data in air quotes, which I'm doing here quite emphatically, um, because it's not a technical term. So there's no size, there's no big that is big, there's no number of rows or number of dimensions. Um, and what big data really was about was the, uh, the introduction of tooling that let us query large data sets um, and get the answers back quickly. And so it was really about just counting things in data sets um, that wouldn't fit on our laptops anymore. And I actually think personally, it was really a, a, the real innovation was the human advantage that comes from being able to do that query and get the answer back before you forgot why you did that query in the first place. So human behavior around that kind of technical system is entirely different than human behavior around a system where it takes a day or a week to get a response. Exactly. Because you, you will ask different questions. Yes. And you'll play. Yeah. You'll do things uh, that otherwise would be a waste of resources. I think that's uh, actually a really, really good point. Because you don't have to always be sure that you will do something that will be a good use of your resources. Mm -hmm. you, you can just try stuff out and see what happens. Exactly. 
Um, so that was big data. So that was really just about being able to query and count things in data sets of arbitrary size um, using you know, specialized infrastructure. And once you can do that, then you can do analytics or BI, um, which means you're counting things for a purpose. So you're thinking about those business assumptions and, you know, looking for the answers to those questions, building dashboards, reporting, but that's counting things ultimately. And then you can think about, okay, what is data science and how does that relate to analytics? And the, the answer is that data science is essentially just counting things cleverly. So it's building these models of your data, being able to predict things, um, being able to use the data in a way that uh, you can't if you're just counting and that perhaps requires a bit of more complex algorithmic work. And so then machine learning is a, you know, a, a subset of the work in data science. And I would think of it if we continue this very simplistic metaphor as just counting things cleverly with feedback loops. So machine learning systems are trained off of data. They may be productionized. They have new data entering the system. Um, but that's ultimately, this is where you see your product recommendations, your search algorithms, um, anomaly detection and security issues. Um, that's ultimately what happens. And then AI now has returned as a term. And whenever I give a talk about this, I always make the, the phrase AI blue because blue is the color of the future. And it's a bit of a marketing term at the moment. Um, the reason it's resurged is because of the, the utility that's come out of deep learning techniques over the last few years. Um, but the phrase AI, if you look at the way it's used now, it's not limited only to deep learning, which is a subset of machine learning, which is a subset of data science and so on down. Um, and so it's a bit of a it's kind of like big data in that way. Um, and yet, you know, it's, it's the term that our industry is using today. So we have to, we have to embrace it. So if I, have, if I talk about my work in that context, it's applied AI, but the point I want to make, and the reason it's important to define these things is that you cannot do AI without machine learning and you cannot do machine learning without data science and you can't do data science without analytics because they all depend on each other. And that's, uh, you can't be great at machine learning and terrible at analytics. Because if you can't, if you can do algorithmic work, but you can't count anything in your data and you can't query your data, you're missing a really important part of the, the system. So, so one of the things that you also mentioned is that AI is currently used heavily as a marketing term. Mm -hmm. uh, and I guess one of the problems that comes with that is that it's hard to understand what the word even means then in that context. And it becomes very similar to, to just magic. It's, it becomes this dust that you can just sprinkle on stuff. <laughs> it's and it certainly will, used it, like that. So uh, what, are the, like, what are the things that we can do to prevent that? Or like, why is it even a problem that, that AI is used in such a fashion or the term is used in such a fashion? <laughs> well, this is one where I might rant at you a little bit because... <laughs> I mean, this is a problem in the technology industry in general, and then it's, it's even worse in the AI part of the technology industry because we like to pretend that these new technologies are some kind of magic and, um, you know, they're just going to do their own thing and we don't have to think about how they work, how they might uh, go wrong, um, or even, you know, how they might develop over time. 
And so if you look not so much in the technical community necessarily, but in the business community at the discussion around AI, people just seem to think it's some kind of magic box that you plug into the data and stuff comes out the other end um, and that's it. And I will keep challenging people to say that you cannot think you're going to build a product and use AI, whatever you mean by that, as a component of your product and absolve yourself of the responsibility to even understand at a conceptual level what the machine is actually doing, because ultimately it's still a computer program. It's not any, you know, more complicated necessarily than your web server or than your mobile phone operating system. And, and yet nobody seems to think those are magic boxes. Let's say that, uh, let's say that I'm an executive in a major corporation and, and some people from, from my organization or like within, within my organization are coming to me and pitching their idea that they want to use AI for this or that. What are the kinds of questions that I should be asking them to, to understand the things that they are doing? Yeah, so there is really, um, you know, I'm, I'm often in the role of the person who gets to listen to the big idea and then actually figure out how to build it. And so you want to, you know, encourage people to be sort of product visionaries and to think about how to use these emerging technologies to do things that haven't been done before that can add a ton of value, have a huge impact. And then on the other hand, it actually has to be possible and it has to be reasonable to build as well. And so if you're a business leader and someone comes to you and says, oh, I want to use AI to do something, first you say, stop using the phrase AI because that's not well-defined well <laughs> and it's not precise. <laughs> And the second thing you say is, tell me how it's going to work. So what data are we going to collect? Uh, what are we going to do to it? What kinds of patterns do you think might be in that data? What do you expect the outputs to be? Is this kind of something where we're just going to take unstructured data and find the structure in the data? Are we going to build a classifier of some kind? Um, and then, you know, how are we going to operationalize it? Which is something that everyone neglects, by the way. Um, once we've built a model and it works in our test environment, how do we get it out into the real world? How do we build the feedback loops to get new data into the model? How do we monitor the quality of the model over time and all of that really fun stuff? Yeah, and I think you already mentioned one just very simple question is that like or that you can you can ask uh, people to explain the same idea without using the term artificial intelligence <laughs> <laughs> and just explain like what's what's the thing that you're actually doing? Yeah. So I'm a big fan if you're managing, and it doesn't have to be just an AI project, but any sort of data project, ask people first, what is the question you're trying to answer? What is the problem you're going to solve? And get them to answer it in clear language that anyone can understand. And the second thing you ask is how do you know when you have a successful solution to that question that you've just posed? And that is what are, you, what are your quantitative error metrics? How do you know when you've won? And they have to be able to answer that before they can move on. And I'm also a fan of asking, assuming you can answer this question, what are we going to do with it? And I ask that because data scientists often like to get excited about things that are really interesting, but not necessarily impactful useful. from yeah. a, or useful from a business point of view. And so by forcing them to think through it in the beginning of a project, you sort of give them the criteria for knowing if they should invest their time. And then when you're building a prototype, you should always, always start with the simplest possible implementation. 
by which I mean things like um, if you're, say, doing entity extraction, you should try something as simple as looking for phrases repeated that don't show up in the English word dictionary that you get for free in Unix. I mean, something so simple. And there are a bunch of reasons to do that. One is that you can very quickly prototype uh, without investing the time in doing the you know real robust solution. And the second is that when you do invest the time, you have something to compare to. The solution that you propose for looking for words that are not in the Unix dictionary, it's a great first attempt at solving that problem. I think that's like, that's a skill in itself, figuring out like, what's a simple way that I can like do the first attempt at solving this problem? No, it's true. And it's something I interview for actively because um, a lot of folks who, you know, have spent a lot of time in academia and they do, you know, really robust theoretical research do not have that skill. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's one of the, like, when we look at uh, business, that's one of the key skills that you need to have to, cause, cause once again, I think it's, it's, we were talking about the importance of prioritization and this is like, this is a way for us to get data to help us with the prioritization. If we can actually get some initial, like rudimentary results of the things that we could be building, then we can use that to inform the prioritization that we're doing. Absolutely. So if your current thing doesn't work out, you should manage data scientists. yes perfect Uh, thanks a lot for your time oh thank you this is really fun How about that? Good stuff, huh? Don't forget to share it with, well, everyone. Just share it with everyone just to be sure. Thanks to Mariana Toeminen for introducing me to Hillary. Mariana has also recently started a podcast called Steal My Job, which discusses the future of work. So you can go check it out. The link is in the show notes. But just so you know, despite the English title, the podcast is actually in Finnish. And I was also interviewed for a Finnish podcast called Akonniemen Avaraluonto. If you want to check that out, the link to that is also in the show notes. Next episode of Boss Level will be out in two weeks. Until then. Okay, here comes the real thing.